Chapter Thirteen of Arizona Nights by Stephen Edward White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Buried Treasure. The old timer's voice broke a little. We had leisure to notice that even the drip from the eaves had ceased. A faint, diffused light vouchsafed us dim outlines of sprawling figures and tumbled bedding. Far in the distance outside, a wolf yelped. We could do nothing for him except shelter him from the sun and wet his forehead with sea water nor could we think clearly for ourselves as long as the spark of life lingered in him. His chest rose and fell regularly, but with long pauses between. When the sun was overhead, he suddenly opened his eyes. "'Fellas,' said he, "'it's beautiful over there. The grass is so green and the water's so cool. I'm tired of marching, and I reckon I'll cross over and camp.' Then he died. We scooped out a shallow hole above tide-mark and laid him in it, and piled over him stones from the wash. Then we went back to the beach very solemn to talk it over. Now, boys, said I, there seems to me just one thing to do, and that is to pike out for water as fast as we can. Where? asked Denton. Well, I argued, I don't believe there's any water about this bay. Maybe there was when that chart was made. It was a long time ago. And anyway, the old pirate was a sailor and no plainsman, and maybe he mistook rainwater for a spring. We've looked around this end of the bay. The chances are we'd use up two or three days exploring around the other, and then wouldn't be as well off as we are right now. Which way? asked Ditton again, mighty brief. Well, said I, there's one thing I've always noticed in case of folks held up by the desert. They generally go wandering about here and there looking for water until they die not far from where they got lost, and usually they've covered a heap of actual distance. That's so, agreed Ditton. Now I've always figured that it would be a good deal better to start right out for some particular place even if it's ten thousand miles away. A man is just as likely to strike water going in a straight line as he is going in a circle, and then besides he's getting somewhere. Correct, said Denton. So, I finished, I reckon we'd better follow the coast south and try to get to Molly Hay. How far is that, asked Schwartz? I don't rightly know, but somewhere's between three and five hundred miles, I'd guess. At that he fell to glorying and grooming with himself, brooding over what a hard time it was going to be. That is the way with the German. First off, he's plumb scared at the prospect of suffering anything, and would rather die right off than take long chances. After he gets into the swing of it, he behaves as well as any man. We took stock of what we had to depend on. The total assets proved to be just three pairs of legs. A pot of coffee had been on the fire, but that villain had kicked it over when he left. The kettle of beans was there, but somehow we got the notion they might have been poisoned, so we left them. I don't know now why we were so foolish. If poison was his game... He'd have tried it before, but at that time it seemed reasonable enough. Perhaps the horror of the morning's work, and the sight of the brittle brown mountains, and the ghastly yellow glare of the sun, and the blue waves racing by outside, and the big strong wind that blew through us so hard that it seemed to blow empty our souls, had turned our judgment. Anyway, we left a full mill there in the bean-pot. So without any further delay we set off up the ridge I had started across that morning. Schwartz lagged, sulky as a muley cow, but we managed to keep him with us. At the top of the ridge we took our bearings for the next deep bay. Already we had made up our minds to stick to the sea coast, both on account of the lower country over which to travel and the off chance of falling in with a fishing vessel. Schwartz muttered something about it being too far, even to the next bay, and wanted to sit down on a rock. Didn't didn't say anything, but he jerked Schwartz up by the collar so fiercely that the German gave it over and came along. We dropped down into the gully stumbled over the boulder wash and began to toil in the ankle-deep sand of a little sagebrush flat this side of the next ascent. Schwartz followed steadily enough now, but had fallen forty or fifty feet behind. 
This was a nuisance, as we had to keep turning to see if he still kept up. Suddenly he seemed to disappear. Denton and I hurried back to find him on his hands and knees behind the sagebrush, clawing away at the sand like mad. Can't be water on this flat, said Denton. He must have gone crazy. What's the matter, Schwartz? I asked. For answer he moved a little to one side, showing beneath his knee one corner of a wooden box sticking above the sand. At this we dropped beside him, and in five minutes had uncovered the whole of the chest. It was not very large and was locked. A rock from the wash fixed that, however. We threw back the lid. It was full to the brim of gold coins, thrown in loose, not two bushels of them. The treasure! I cried. There it was, sure enough, or some of it. We looked the rest through, but found nothing but the gold coins. The alternate ornaments and jewels were lacking. Probably buried in another box or so, said Denton. Schwartz wanted to dig around a little. No good, said I. We've got our work cut out for us as it is. Denton backed me up. We were both old hands of the business, had each in our time suffered the cotton-mouth thirst, and the memory of it outweighed any desire for treasure. But Schwartz was money-mad. Left to himself, he would have stayed in that sand flat to perish, as certainly as had poor Billy. We had fairly to force him away, and then succeeded only because we let him fill all his pockets to bulging with the coins. As we moved up the next rise, he kept looking back and uttering little moans against the crime of leaving it. Luckily for us, it was winter. We shouldn't have lasted six hours at this time of year. As it was, the sun was hot against the shell and the little stones of those cussed hills. We plodded along until late afternoon, toiling up one hill and down another, only to repeat immediately. Towards sundown we made the second bay, where we plunged into the sea, clothes and all, and were greatly refreshed. I suppose a man absorbs a good deal that way. Anyhow, it always seemed to help. We were now pretty hungry and as we walked along the shore we began to look for turtles or shellfish or anything else that might come handy. There was nothing. Schwartz wanted to stop for a night's rest, but Denton and I knew better than that. Look here, Schwartz, said Denton. You don't realize you're entered against time in this race, and that you're a damn fool to carry all that weight in your clothes. So we dragged along all night. It was weird enough, I can tell you. The moon shone cold and white over that dead, dry country. Hot whiffs rose from the baked stones and hillsides. Shadows lay under the stones like animals crouching. When we came to the edge of a silvery hill, we dropped off into pitchy blackness. There we stumbled over boulders for a minute or so, and began to climb the steep shell on the other side. This was fearful work. The top seemed always miles away. By morning we didn't seem to have made much of anywhere. The same old hollow-looking mountains with the sharp edges stuck up in about the same old places. We had got over being very hungry, and though we were pretty dry, we didn't really suffer yet from thirst. About this time Denton ran across some fish-hook cactus, which we cut up and chewed. They have a sticky wet sort of inside, which doesn't quench your thirst any, but helps to keep you from drying up and blowing away. All that day we plugged along as per usual. It was main hard work, and we got to that state where things are disagreeable, but mechanical. Strange to say, Schwartz kept in the lead. It seemed to me at the time that he was using more energy than the occasion called for just as man runs faster before he comes to the given-out point. However, the hours went by, and he didn't seem to get any more tired than the rest of us. We kept a sharp lookout for anything to eat, but there was nothing but lizards and horned toads. Later we'd have been glad of them, but by that time we'd got out of the district. Night came. Just at sundown we took another walla in the surf and chewed some more fish-o' cactus. When the moon came up, we went on. I'm not going to tell you how dead beat we got. We were pretty tough and strong, for all of us had been used to hard living, 
but after the third day without anything to eat and no water to drink, it came to be pretty hard going. It got to the point where we had to have some reason for getting out besides just keeping alive. A man would sometimes rather die than keep alive anyway, if it came only to that. But I know I made up my mind I was going to get out so I could smash up that Anderson, and I reckon didn't have the same idea. Schwartz didn't say anything, but he pumped on ahead of us, his back bent over, and his clothes sagging and bulging with the gold he carried. We used to travel all night because it was cool, and rest an hour or two at noon. That is all the rest we did get. I don't know how fast we went. I'd got beyond that. We must have crawled along mighty slow, though, after our first strength gave out. The way I used to do was to collect myself with an effort, look around for my bearings, pick out a landmark a little distance off, and forget everything but it. Then I'd plod along, knowing nothing but the sand and shell and slope under my feet, until I'd reached that landmark. Then I'd clear my mind and pick out another. But I couldn't shut out the figure of Schwartz that way. He used to walk along just ahead of my shoulder. His face was all twisted up. But I remember thinking at the time it looked more as if he was worried in his mind than like bodily suffering. The weight of the gold in his clothes bent his shoulders over. As we went on, the country gradually got to be more mountainous, and, as we were steadily growing weaker, it did seem things were piling up on us. The eighth day we ran out of the fissure cactus, and being on a high promontory, were out of touch with the sea. For the first time my tongue began to swell a little. The cactus had kept me from that before. Denton must have been in the same fix, for he looked at me and raised one eyebrow, kind of humorous. Schwartz was having a good deal of difficulty to navigate. I will say for him that he had done well, but now I could see that his strength was going on him in spite of himself. He knew it all right, for when we rested that day, he took all the gold coins and spread them in a row and counted them, and put them back in his pocket, and then all of a sudden snatched out two handfuls and threw them as far as he could. Too heavy, he muttered, but that was all he could bring himself to throw away. All that night we wandered high in the air. I guess we tried to keep a general direction, but I don't know. Anyway, along late, but before moonrise, she was now on the wane. I came too, and found myself looking over the edge of a twenty-foot drop. Right below me I made out a faint glimmer of white earth in the starlight. Somehow it reminded me of a little trail I used to know under a big rock back in Texas. Here's a trail, I thought. More than half loco. I'll follow it. At least that's what half of me thought. The other half was sensible, I knew better, but it seemed to be kind of standing to one side, a little scornful, watching the performance. So I slid and slipped down to the strip of white earth, and, sure enough, it was a trail. At that, the local half of me gave the sensible part the laugh. I followed the path twenty feet and came to a dark hollow under the rock, and in it a round pool of water about a foot across. They say a man kills himself drinking too much after starving for water. That may be, but it didn't kill me and I sucked up all I could hold. Perhaps the fish-hook cactus had helped. Well, sir, it was surprising how that drink brought me around. A minute before I'd been on the edge of going plumb loco, and here I was as clear-headed as a lawyer. I hunted up Denton and Schwartz. They drank themselves full, too. Then we'd rested. It was mighty hard to leave that spring. Oh, we had to do it. We'd have starved sure there. The trail was a game trail, but that did us no good, for we had no weapons. How we did wish for the coffee pot, so we could take some away. We filled our hats and carried them about three hours before the water began to soak through. Then we had to drink it in order to save it. The country fairly stood up on end. We had to climb separate little hills so as to avoid rolling rocks down on each other. It took it out of us. About this time we began to see mountain sheep. 
they would come right up to the edges of the small cliffs to look at us. We threw stones at them, hoping to hit one in the forehead, but of course without any results. The good effects of the water lasted us about a day. Then we began to see things again. Off and on I could see water plain as could be in every hollow, and game of all kinds standing around and looking at me. I knew these were all fakes. By making an effort I could swing things around to where they belonged. I used to do that every once in a while, just to be sure we weren't doubling back, and to look out for real water. But most of the time it didn't seem to be worthwhile. I just let all these visions riot around and have a good time inside of me or outside of me, whichever it was. I knew I could get rid of them any minute. Most of the time, if I was in any doubt, it was easier to throw a stone to see if the animals were real or not. The real ones ran away. We began to see bands of wild horses in the uplands. One day both Ditton and I plainly saw one with saddle marks on him. If only one of us had seen him, it wouldn't have counted much, but we both made him out. This encouraged us wonderfully, though I don't see why it should have. We had topped the high country too, and had started down the other side of the mountains that ran out on the promontory. Ditton and I were still navigating without any thought of giving up, but Schwartz was getting in bad shape. I'd hate to pack twenty pounds over that country even with rest, food, and water. He was toting it on nothing. We told him so, and he came to see it, but he never could persuade himself to get rid of the gold all at once. Instead, he threw away the pieces one by one. Each sacrifice seemed to nerve him up for another heat. I can shut my eyes and see it now. The wide, glaring yellow country, the pasteboard mountains, we three dragging along, and the fierce sunshine flashing from the doubloons as one by one they went spinning through the air. This is the end of chapter 13.